when you take tests, you're given A and B, and then you could, you're could you supposed to solve for C. But in real life, you don't know what A and B are. So how do you even find C? And, and that's the thing about entrepreneurship. There is no right or wrong way to start a company, like how to get clients, how to do your supply chain, where you should go. Every day is a challenge, and that's what they don't teach you at school. John, thank you so, so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Thank you, Sean. Look forward to it. Yeah. So, Jonathan, one of the questions that I always love asking our VC guests that come on the show is, you know, you could have had so many different entry points into the startup world or, or into business in general, but you've chosen to be a venture capitalist and to really invest in the next, you know, uh, the next cohort, if you will, of great entrepreneurs and and startup companies. What is it about technology and startups in general that you're so passionate about? Why have you chosen this to be, you know, your career? You know, for me, I never was excited about becoming like a CEO of a company. Even though I run the company for my family business of clothing manufacturing, I always love the idea of collaboration. Like, uh, it's weird. Like, I have four degrees, you know, and three masters. And people think like, wow, it's such an accomplishment. But I always tell people it was me going after brains. I just wanted to meet more people who I knew would be better. I never wanted to be like the smartest person in the room. That doesn't like excite me. I love hanging out with other people in different avenues, whether it's like, you know, understanding technology or if it's sports or if it's entertainment, like it gets me excited to meet other people and their other interests. And for me, being a venture capitalist isn't just about like, oh, writing a check. That doesn't excite me. Like, yes, we can make great sums of money. whoop do do I just love the idea of like, hey, that might be the next Steve Jobs. And we help them get there, you know, and it's just like, wow, being part of something there, there's a legacy, you know, uh, my, my father always said to me, like what made him excited? Like he said, Hey, once you become an entrepreneur, when you come to boss, there's no going back. You just can't go to a nine to five job. And I love what I do. I love just like, like today I'm talking with you before then I was talking to the CFO of a beverage company before then it was like somebody wanted me to join a charity board. Like, it's great. Like, it's just fun and exciting. Especially in the context that you're that you're describing, which is almost like you're a vehicle, like like you as an investor are like a vehicle to help these entrepreneurs, you know, either accomplish their goals or solve big problems. And I I love the idea of kind of reframing your mindset around like surrounding yourself with people that you can learn a lot from. And when you're a VC, of course, you can make a lot of money, but you basically like positioned yourself with people that are so passionate about specific problems uh, it must be really exciting for you to see so many as you mentioned like different walks of life uh john can you talk to me a little bit about you know where did we come from what was early days like did you grow up in los angeles did you did you come to la at some point yeah, definitely. So I'm born and raised from Los Angeles. You know, I was born in Whittier, California. Um, where I am now, I've, I've been here since Kobe Bryant became a Laker. Mm. So, you know, I'm on the Wilshire Corridor. Like, it's so crazy what things are going on in the world today. But yeah, I've been in this place since I was 13 years old. And uh, I came out here because I was living out towards uh, Diamond Bar, Rowan Heights. And my parents really put an emphasis on education. So at the time, um, I went to Buckley you know, in Sherman Oaks from seventh to 12th grade. And it's crazy looking back, like how many entrepreneurs came out of Buckley? When, when you were in elementary school, did you ever think about business or becoming an entrepreneur or, or building business? Or was it always about academia for you? 
You know what? That was my biggest fault uh, just growing up. Like I thought it all had to be about the grades and getting into an Ivy League school. And, you know, that was part of my identity. But I realized it had nothing to do with that. I was so lucky that I got these internships in Washington, D.C. Um, Tell me about that. What, what was that like? Yeah. It was so different because it didn't matter. Like I was meeting so many people who were from the Ivy League around the country working at the Department of Labor and then the, the State Department uh, both summers in a row. And it was just great. It was more about your work ethic. I thought, because like looking back now, schools don't mean anything. Like mm-hmm. I always tell people like, you know, I went to MIT, Wharton, London School of Economics, USC, all sounds great, you know, but at the end of the day, that that's not enough. You have to have this certain drive. Jonathan, and... what, what do you think that is? Because like as someone, as someone in your, you know, from your mentality, mm-hmm. like we're education was so important. It might've even been the most important thing that was yeah. drilled into you at a young age. How come, you know, 15, 20, 30 years later, you now look at education and like, you, you know, almost plainly, you're able to say, it's just not that important anymore. Like, where do you think the shift has happened, especially as it re- revolves around entrepreneurship or startups? I think the, there was someone who said this great to me one time, the lie of academia, because when you take tests, you're given A and B, and then you could, you're supposed to solve for C. But in real life, you don't know what A and B are. So how do you even find C? And, and that's the thing about entrepreneurship. There is no right or wrong way to start a company, like how to get clients, how to do your supply chain, where you should go. Every day is a challenge. And that's what they don't teach you at school. And so after getting out of school, like I remember the first job I ever had was being a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley. And I'm like, oh, I'm at Morgan Stanley. That's a Fortune 500 company. I'm going to learn how to invest. Guess what? They don't know how to invest. They can't tell you what stock market is going to do today. Like I can tell you right now, no one has any clue why the stock market is still up when there's rioting, when there's like COVID-19. How is the stock market still up when unemployment's over 20%? Like what's happening? And so it's just like, wow, it's just about being informed. Like, you know, looking at these kind of podcasts, listening to people's experiences. That's what truly is going to shape the future and how we decide to make decisions going forward. How did you, you didn't mention where you ended up going to, to undergrad. What, what was your, what was your decision once you left high school? Um, at the time it was, uh, I went to USC for undergrad. It was between that UCLA, Berkeley and Georgetown. And I considered Georgetown at the time because of, uh, you know, we had family friends out there and it was something in the East coast and it was a great school. But for me, it was about business. You know, my mm-hmm. father was, man uh he came to this country with 500 dollars to his name you know and that's the american dream it's being able to create something amazing and having the opportunity doesn't matter like your your background your ethnicity like your social economic status like coming to america you can create and build like if he was in china there's no way he would have become a multimillionaire when there because like you know his father died when he was 16 his mother died when he was three coming to america was a chance and he started doing clothing manufacturing who knew Totally different than what he studied at school. Wow. Wow. And now when you went to Georgetown, was it during undergrad that you decided that you wanted to go into, you know, startups and you wanted to go into becoming a VC? At what point did you decide that you wanted to actually be an investor? Yeah. Well, I went to USC, not Georgetown. I'm sorry, but, uh, USC. Yes. Not Georgetown. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, we're in Southern California. I, listen, I can't sell out. You know? <laughs> a Trojan, right on, you know. Um it really wasn't then either, you know, it was just my experiences leading up to that after working, 
after USC and because of my internships, I went to the London School of Economics. I did my master's there for a year. And it was a great experience getting that European exposure. Um, I knew I never was going to work out there. But then so I came back. You know, luckily, my mom likes to say I got in the tail end of right before the Great Recession hit. I literally was there, you know, became a financial advisor, ready to go, Series 7, licensed, you know, with a great team. And then the S&P went to 666, right? It's over. (laughs) And it was just like, wow, what luck, right? But after that, like, you know, it was fun. It was fun helping understanding finances, but I knew it wasn't like, you know, that wasn't just enough for me, like helping other people make more money. It wasn't exciting to me. So that's when I knew I wanted to become more of an operational person. So that's why I went to MIT at the time, getting a supply chain engineering degree. And from there, I I love my opportunity there at MIT. It was so entrepreneurial, so many things you could learn and understand. And that's why I took my first job outside of the U.S. I went to work for a uh, in Shanghai with Cummins, which is a Fortune 500 company out of Columbus, uh, Indiana. They do diesel engines and uh, generators and had a great time. But then unfortunately, my father got sick oh. and I had to come back home and take over the family business. Wow. And, and, and the family yeah. business was in, in clothing manufacturing. Clothing manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, like just if you think of Foxconn that makes your phone, like we're the ones who make these shirts, you know, like uh, Nike, Polo, they don't own factories. You know, they contract out. And so that's what we did. We've done stuff for Amazon, Burlington Co. Factory, uh, Costco, uh, mail order ca- catalogs. You know, that's their label. Sometimes we had brands as well that we would put, buy and pay licensing for. Like, it was a great experience. What were what were some of your takeaways, both positive and negative? For example, I'm picturing in my head, you know, either mm-hmm. students that are currently in college or just out of college, maybe their parents are uh, becoming more elderly and they're thinking, man, I may need to take over my parents' business someday. What do you say to those sorts of people? Like, what are some of the positive takeaways and what are some of the, you know, almost areas that you would, uh, you know, recommend that they look more into or or think about maybe some of the downsides of going into the family business? Well, I would say the positives are that you're going to get a real education, you know, and it's not like you can get anything at school. You see one day, like, you know, like I, I was working as a project manager at Cummins and all of a sudden I'm the VP you know, of Barrage, United Overseas Textile Corporation. But what does that mean? Are there certain roles that I have to fill? Yeah. One day I'm, I'm dealing with accounts. One day I'm dealing with uh, logistics and brokers and the warehouse or, you know, shipping issues or like uh, with our customers, relations, you know, like it's really just being able to say like, wow, there is no actual role and title, you know, it, and the hierarchy, it, the buck stops here. You have to take con- full control. And sometimes the bad thing is, is like, you know, when you work for your, for your dad, he's going to be your harshest critic. <laughs> Sometimes when you're in, you know, a, a corporation, like you're not going to get yelled at, like you get yelled at by your mom or dad. <laughs> I can, you know, like, I can definitely attest to that. Yes. Yeah. I tell my business partners, like, you don't scare me. All right. I work for David Hung. All right. All right. He's my own flesh and blood. All right. I mean, he embarrassed me in front of all the employees. Like, that's fine. All right. Give me a break. If I could deal with that. I could deal with anything. All right. Yeah. You have thick skin going into this. Yeah. Now, after you got out of MIT and you joined the family business, what was, you know, what what was that experience like for you? Did you love it? Did you hate it? You know, was it more of a duty and loyalty to your family or did you find that you became passionate about it from just like putting in those hard days? It was both. Because, because as dad says, you're your own entrepreneur, you're, you're figuring out your own legacy, you're doing your own pioneering. At the same time, in 2012, when I came back home to take over the family business in February, I also wanted to know more about Silicon Beach. 
and venture investing. And it, it afforded me the luxury of being able to spend, like, you know, you had Google has that 80-20 rule, right? Like, yeah. oh, you spend 80% on Google and 20% on your own thing. I spent 25% of the time, like, finding what I wanted to do outside of just the family business. And it was investing. And, and early stage startups, uh, I'll never forget, you know, the business partners I have today, I met during that year. And, you know, I've had some great successes. My first investment was a company called uh, uh, Gift, G-Y-F-T. And I met Buck Jordan. Now he's at Wavemaker, you know, but at the time it was his own thing, Canyon Creek Capital. And like we first meeting we had, he pitched me this idea about mobile gift cards. And I didn't look at the pitch deck. I did, I did everything wrong. I'm like, all right, I'll put 25,000 in. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Literally, that's what happened. And he's like, really? Like, yeah. And I wired the money the next two days. Like, you know, just like, and it was so stupid. But, you know, first data bought us in 10 months later. The best, like, deal I've had so far. So quick. Unbelievable. What what was it? Do you, like, when you think back about that particular pitch or that particular Mm -hmm. meeting, obviously, like, there's some luck that plays into it. But what do you, what was it about that meeting that gave you the conviction to invest in? Was it his personality, the market size, the problem? Or was it just like you were so excited to get your first deal in that none of that even mattered? Like, what, what was going through your head? It made sense to me that the idea... Like sometimes I've made a mistake just basing it on the idea, especially when you're super early in seed. But that wasn't that was more than a seed deal at the time. Anything pre-seed and seed, I always focused on the team. But at that time, the idea made sense. This is like you have to remember it was before Apple Pay. And everybody was still like the gift card at the time is still like 90% uh, of gift cards. Physical, physical product, you yeah. Know, you have to have the actual card. But then the idea, like, wow, you're it's on your phone, it's in the cloud. I mean, think this is like, you know, I was at MIT and Dropbox was a big sponsor. And I'm just like, yeah, it makes sense to go cloudless. Mm. And people are carrying less and less cash or they're using their credit. Like it made sense to me. It's like being almost a futurist and seeing like what people would want to do. Like I I love the idea when you look at Facebook, you know, and like why Facebook died from their IPO in the beginning was that like there was one thing on their 10 on their S1 report were saying like we haven't figured out mobile yet. Like we think of Facebook today is what it is with Instagram and WhatsApp. But at the time of their IPO, they had no idea how to monetize mobile because at the time we still had to use, you know, the actual laptop itself to log in and do all that. And for them now it's like over $200 a share because they figured out mobile. Wow. And that was a future way of looking at things. And so I was like, it made sense to me then. And then we got lucky. I mean, we got really lucky first data bought us and I rolled that investment into a company called Chow Now. And fortunately, you know, Chow Now is here. I mean, Chris Webb's doing a great job and, you know, we're ordering more and more online right now. So hopefully we'll exit out of that one day soon enough. Uh, that's that's incredible. And as you began developing, because I, I feel like the when you see an idea that you really like, part of that comes from your own experience. Part of it comes mm-hmm. from your own biases, your own lens of the yeah. world. But as you mentioned, a lot of it comes uh, with the team itself. When you invest today, what are the qualities or traits that you look for in early stage pre-seed seed startups that you really um, champion in, you know, and, and believe are, are, are core principles of your investing strategy? Um, it's all about, for me, grit and this relentlessness. I mean, you just can't teach that. Like, I mean, like, I think execution, um, it gets better with time. You know, it's not like you're out of Harvard or Stanford or USC and like you're know how to execute. It just takes time to execute. And that's okay because like it takes one team to get from zero to 100,000 revenue and then another team to get you from 100,000 revenue a year to a million, to multiple millions. You know, you got to keep adding to your team. So that I'm not too worried about. But in the beginning stage, it's like who you are. 
are you willing to give up, you know, everything you are to this idea? I mean, like, I love people who come to me and it's like, oh yeah, I need funding, but like, you know, I'm still keeping my day job. Well then like, should I give you all the money or just half of what you're asking? Cause you're not hundred percent in. So why, why should I take a risk of my capital when you're not even taking a risk? Cause you don't have capital, but you have your time mm. and that's what you're putting into it. How do you test for grit? Is it mostly through just you having the entrepreneur tell you their story and you're just listening for certain points of hardship? Or do you have a specific way in which you try to, because grit is a hard thing to pull out of someone, mm-hmm. especially in a virtual meeting, right? Well, you know, in today's society, yeah. you're taking as a VC a lot more of these first meetings now on Zoom or on Skype or Google Hangout. How do you pull grit out of someone that you're, even when you're hiring someone, like, how do you get grit? How do you pull that from them? It's how they, it's how they do tasks, simple tasks. It's like literally I, uh, there's an investment we're looking at for Unicorn right now. And one of my partners has all these other due diligence questions and this guy could wait, you know, a day or two, but literally I asked him last night, he got to me back in an hour and Hey, I have more questions. He got to me, not the next day or a week later that day. And so it's like, it gives me confidence saying like, this is a true entrepreneur. He knows what it takes. He's not wasting time because he knows that he needs the money to excel faster. It's not like, oh, let me wait a day. Like those are things you can measure. And especially like, you know, I, I will take cold, cold calls. You know, I will take cold emails, you know, once in a while and see, because it might be the team might be the deck that excites me, but I love warm introductions. Like the, most of the deals that we've done through unicorn have been through people that I trust through my network since I've developed in the angel and VC world since 2012. And with, when you trust people you work with, just like I trust the people I went to Wharton with, or I trust the people I have MIT with, like it, it goes a long way. Speed and it gives makes it faster. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really interesting. You said that. I mean, I, I love one of the things I love the most about interviewing real high achievers like mm-hmm. yourself is you, um, you start to see things that are important to people that maybe you didn't necessarily think in your own head were that important. Like for example, you know, when we, let's say for, uh, we're pitching a company, and we give it like a, a day to get back to them or two days to get back to them. It's not because we don't want that deal or we don't want to make that money, but I can understand in hearing it from you that, you know, you need to be fast and you need to be on it because the flip side to that is, you know, an investor like yourself might be seeing that and say, oh, you know, they're, they don't have the grit. They don't, they don't understand how hard it is to acquire this money. The fact that they're willing to wait a day or a couple of hours or a day and a half uh, it, it, it sounds like it's one of those things. I have a lot of friends that run businesses, even venture back businesses, and they'll get an yeah. email from their investor and won't get back to them for a day or two days or three days. Yeah. And I think it's, those are the sorts of things where you're like, I notice those little things, even if you, this founder doesn't think it's that important, it's really yeah. important to you. Yeah. It's just like with Tom Hanks at his golden, uh, his Cecil B. DeMille speech, like being an actor is just showing up, being prepared on time. Like that's half of the success that you're looking for. Success is 50% being ready and being knowledgeable. And the other 50% is just luck and timing. Like, like I was just reading articles today on Medium. Like, look, Microsoft Zoom, too early. Too early when it came out, you know? I mean, we had Edison, right? For Apple before. I mean, like it was, iPads are everywhere now. It's just, it's just the timing sometimes helps. But like, if you could show that you're a good person to trust now, even if you fail, Maybe the second time around, it's better timing, better idea, better team. I'd still write a check for you because you've been through the hardships. Like, I, I don't understand how people like 
think like, oh, he's like, he failed at two startups. Like, why should we try again? Like, I think he knows better now how to be like, I, I you know, I, I don't think openers are great. It's people who close that are, yeah. are truly the that's it's interesting you say that because i one of my favorite like conversations that i've had on the show was learning from uh, Peng Zhao from uh embark ventures and he was talking about how as an investor you have one of the hardest jobs in the entire world and i said Peng, you know Peng, like come on you guys are just giving money away to founders like people are listening (laughs) to this saying like how could you have the hardest job And, and he basically said that when you're a founder and entrepreneur it's not, it's almost like a badge of honor if you have failed and you come back and you come back and you, that, that grit you're talking about. But as a venture capitalist, you don't get to just fail and come back. That each and every one of your funds has to be on, you know, on, on track. And so I, I really found that interesting that people don't give the same leeway to investors as they do to, yeah. to, to startups. Like you really have to, you know, uh, provide those profits and those earnings for your LPs. Otherwise you're not going to be able to get another fund. Do you have any perspective on that as someone that's had to grow your own fund? Yeah. I mean, like I go back to my financial advising days, you know, and it's just like, you know, I used to tell people I'm the CFO and you're the CEO of your life. And we could give you the best advice I can give you. But at the end of the day, it's your decision as I'm their CFO. And here's the thing, Sean, like, hey, we we made you 10% on this trade. Well, why not 20 is the response you get back sometimes. And it's just like, you know, the more money you make, the more like you expect. It's like the problem of more. And I always find it funny. It's just like, well, like, yeah, we didn't lose as much as the S&P this year. We actually saved you money. We, we risk adjusted. But people are like, well, somebody else made a huge deal there. I'm like... I agree. I agree with that. But it just takes time. I mean, like, I know founders of other venture firms, you know what, they're on their fourth or fifth fund. And they don't even think it's successful. They're like, Oh, we made money for investors, but we ourselves have not made it yet. Yeah. Yeah. That just happened, right? To put somebody on the map, or it would take next Snapchat. It's it's crazy. You know, I I was, uh, I was talking to to Yuri from from Yes VC, and he was just saying how Mm -hmm. there's such a misalignment of success metrics between founders yeah. and VCs. Founders, mm-hmm. like you said, think, yeah, but you know, John, we did better than the SMP or we didn't lose as much as, but VCs, yeah. if they aren't seeing a 10X multiple or a 100X multiple, then they are not getting the success they need for their own LPs and for their own fund. And it's an interesting conversation around, you know, what success looks like to a VC versus what success looks like to a founder. Uh, Jonathan, I wanted to flip the question to you away mm-hmm. from just the, you know, um, uh, the areas that you look for in the founders that you invest in. How about the the areas that are almost red flags for you? And I think I'm getting one of those being, you know, the speed at which they're responding and, and the energy that they give to you. What are some of the other red flags that you tend to stay away from? Um, if they don't understand data and their metrics, because you have to show me your roadmap. I mean, like a lot of people have a great idea, but how do you get from point A? And I'm not even talking about point C. Give me A to B. Because I always tell people like, we're here to give you pre-seed money, seed money, or series A money. After series A, that's not my job anymore. Mm-hmm. That's for, you know, uh, Andreessen or Sequoia or somebody else who can write a bigger check size. Like my goal is just to get you series A. And there's no guarantee that we're going to IPO or get acquired at that time. But I got you the point. Like I'm the team that gets you to maybe, you know, a million in revenue you know, or 10 million revenue. It's the next team that's going to take you 
to give you the accelerant you need to grow into other markets. You've, we got you product market fit. We got you to the right customers. Now it's time for you to, to keep growing and moving forward and adding the right members to your team. Now, Jonathan, did Unicorn Ventures always, was it always Unicorn Ventures? I understood that you had your first investment, you know, back in the day. Was, were you Unicorn Ventures back then? Or is that something that recently or more recently was developed? We started uh, Unicorn Venture Partners 2018. It's three GPs, myself, uh, David Lin, a good friend of mine who I met at Wharton, and my good friend, Philip Serafin. And like I said, we sit atop top of this Unicorn Venture Partners is just pre-seed, seed, and series A. Fortunately for us, Philip runs his own family office called Truesdale Ventures. And for him, he always likes to say, we could be the first check-in and we could take you all the way to IPO. So there is like a dry powder there to help a company grow, grow, grow. But we identify the really early stage companies to get to series A. And right now, before then, I had my own uh, family holding office called J Hart Ventures. I still have that right now. But of course, because I'm running a fund with friends, any great deal, I give it to Unicorn first. If, you know, the investment committee passes, okay, I'll still do a deal, angel. you know, here and there. Cause, yeah, because in my heart of hearts, I still feel I'm an angel investor. I never thought like, oh, I'm a general managing partner or a GP now. You know, I always thought I was going to be an LP. <laughs> totally. Yeah, because to because I, I think to your point that you made earlier, it sounds like you love uh, associating yourself with people that you really love to learn from or ideas that you can get behind. Or it's not just about making the most money. It's also, you know, how you can uh, keep learning and keeping around those sorts of people. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. And and what exactly is Unicorn Ventures like? Like for startups that in, that get investment from Unicorn Ventures. I know that sometimes VCs can be very hands-on. Sometimes they can be very hands-off. What is the sort of style? What what can a startup expect when they take a pre-seed or a seed uh, round check from, from Unicorn? Um, because we're not a huge fund, and to be quite honest, we don't have LPs. So literally, I, I'm not getting paid 2%. I'm not paying 20%, you know, expecting 20% carry. This is our money on the line. So we're going to take active roles as much as you want. Like I will make you introductions to all the other venture capitalists I know in town to help make sure to justify that I'm not the only crazy one who thinks it's going to work. <laughs> that the other people will put money in too. So that's, that's, that's a plus. Um, and, and, and two, uh, for a unicorn, what's different is that we take active roles. You know, we not don't just take a board seat. We will help you look at your business model and say, like, who's the sales process? You know, because of our vast network of, of friends and uh, uh, family members, we can help people find like, oh, well, we've done this before. You know, we've seen like consumer products. We've done a hair coloring company called Isalon, for example, that, you know, sold to Henkel last year. And we've done direct consumer. So we understand that model. We understand the consumer beauty space, what they're looking for, the metrics for someone like a Unilever to come buy you or, or a P&G to want to buy you so that we can give you the solid advice and help you look good enough so that you'll get the next round of funding. So we'll have active roles. And we'll, like this week, I'm going to have a call with uh, one of our investments called Elude, you know, see how they're doing. I mean, they're in the travel space industry which is kind of bad right now mm -hmm. you know yeah, yeah. But you know they just raised their funds right before uh covid hit and you know they're doing the right things to help get drive traffic to the site down the road when things are open up have there been any companies jonathan that you have admired over the last couple of months ones that even from a distance you've thought to yourself wow i, I think these guys are doing it well or, or gals are doing it well anyone that that step you know kind of rises through your mind is someone that you'd like to, to talk about 
Yeah, I mean, like I sit on the board of this company called Skin Tea. It's a sparkling collagen uh, drink that sits between like beverage and the beauty space. And, you know, they did a great job, you know, raising uh, good money, having a great board of directors. You know, they're in Irwan, they're in Sprouts, they're going to start to be in Albertsons uh, starting in June this month. But unfortunately, you know, they ran into some trouble, you know, it was because of cash flow and no one anticipated what was going to happen with coronavirus, you know, and unfortunately uh, they had to take a down route. But, you know, we helped them raise more money to survive and they did the right thing for the company, Mm -hmm. you know, easy just to give up and just call it a day or like, you know, hey, we tried. But I give I give the three founders, especially Bassima, the CEO, all the credit in the world to do what was right. You know, to cut their paychecks, to you know, cut the team, to cut everything to burn so that they could survive. And now they've recapitalized, you know, and I think they're in a great position to expand even further and find the opportunity to pay back all the shareholders. And then some. It's such a it's such a hard position, you know, to to be in in, in this environment, you know, with the uncertainties of COVID. And I think that it's sometimes you know, as a, as an employee or, or a, a team, you know, mate that per, perhaps got let go of a company, it's so hard not yeah. to take it personally. Um, but, you know, businesses are these vessels, they need to, they need the money to be able to operate and to pay. And uh, it's, it's such a tough situation. And, and that's awesome. When, when, when you think about the founder in particular, that, you know, did what he needed to do, what, what is it about, you know, I, I, I can't remember. Is it um, who wrote the hard things about hard things? I know it was. I know it was from the Andreessen. It was. Was it Ben? Ben? Uh, yeah. Words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, what? What is the right way to handle? Is there a right way to handle these sorts of situations? Like when you, as a founder, are caught between a rock and a hard place, especially when you're venture backed. Mm-hmm. Is there, in your opinion, a right way to handle this sort of situation? I think you just have to be vocal. I mean, a lot of times, you know, yeah, it's all about communicating. Like, you know, I've seen founders who are really great, like sending weekly updates and all of a sudden you don't hear from them for a year and be like, what happened? Like when times are tough, that's when you really see who's really gritty and who's relentless and who's going to ask for help when you need it. Like, I, I mean, like I, we had one portfolio company. I had no idea she had COVID. She was like, I was like sending her emails and like, she didn't say, I mean, like, oh, and thank God she's recovered now her and her family. But like, I wondered like, where did, what happened to her? You know, like, especially now, like we want to help you figure out, do you have enough cash flow? What's your burn look like? You need to raise more money. And like, she just went MIA and I'm like, listen, I'm not blaming, you know, her. It's just like circumstance. Yeah. But I just think it's funny when people sometimes just like hide, like that's not a strategy. Mm. Like, you know, hope is not a strategy. You have to get the word out. You have to do whatever is necessary. One of my mentors uh, says this saying that I love. He says, uh, you're either facing the wall or you're facing the road. And if you're facing the wall, you should expect to hit the wall. And I think that that, you know, it's sort of like if you close yourself off to communication, if you just face the wall and hide, then you should expect that you're going to run right into that wall. And uh, I I think uh, that's, that's really, really good advice. When you think about the right sorts of startups for Unicorn, are there any in particular that you just love? Like maybe not even necessarily that the entire board or investment committee votes on, but any ones that you personally love that you just think right now is it's a hot time? 
Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, for me, like when we look at uh, investments for Unicorn, we look at two industries and it's very broad, but it's technology and consumer. Okay. And I actually think, I mean, I could be wrong. I could be wrong because that's, I'm biased in a sense because I'm such a product person, a consumer person, and I've invested in funds like BAM and Halogen, which is all about consumer, you know, tech. Um, I feel like, especially now with where the world is and we have no idea how, how, business budgets are going to be i find b2b and enterprise and software plays i think they're going to be a little slower now i mean like you don't have to spend the money on putting in new tech for your company i mean obviously there's always going to be new tech available but i think like at the end of the day we're in a new world where like i bought shopify stock and you know i'm sure shopify now is profitable but before this year shopify was not profitable you know, Instacart wasn't profitable. These are the companies where, like, we're getting to a sense, like, direct-to-consumer is so different in how you advertise. Like, unfortunately for, for my clothing company, our biggest in, uh, customer went bankrupt March 9th, you know, and it was, like, cash flow issues, credit issues. And they were actually a mail-order catalog company. They did not have any physical stores, you know. And so the, it was different customer preferences and, and consumer tastes have just been different, like, J.C. Penny, Neiman's, Sears—they're never going to be the same. The Gap is never going to order a million units of a pant in like five colorways. That's impossible. We want something more specific, more detailed to us. And so when I look at consumer plays, it's like, how have you figured out direct consumer? Like I get, like you know, you want to be in Walmart. I mean, people always think like, wow, Amazon. You know, Walmart's still number one in the Fortune 500. They kill Amazon in terms of sales. You know, for retail. Obviously, Amazon is number two, and they have all these other things like AWS helping them out, no question, just like Alibaba and JD and all the, you know, 10 cents of the world. But at the end of the day, like, how do you get to your customer is so key. And I think if people have the right way of getting their customers, whether through Facebook or Google AdWords or whatever it is, to get a brand, like, that's the new future I see. I, I totally hear you. I'm, I mean, Coefficient Labs is, you know, built specifically for that, and, and I think that... Mm-hmm. It is, it's really exciting to see, uh, you know, even traditional household names like, you know, uh, my wife and I eat this pasta called Banza, where you mm. normally before COVID, you could never order Banza at home. It was just, a you know, they would send yeah. and, and do all wholesale. And now these sorts of companies are coming totally online are, you know, allowing and enabling customers to order directly from the website. And uh, it is really mm. exciting that it's, you know, it's not just the young hungry startups that are thinking about d2c but now some of these bigger companies and uh, it is a really exciting time uh you know to be here uh, any startups right now in the uh either the unicorn ventures portfolio or even your own personal one that you know you just absolutely are ecstatic about right now or, or ones you want to give a shout out to um let me think of some couple ones like there's one that i love uh right now we're in negotiations to possibly do an investment do due diligence and it's a guy named mike jacobs you know he's running something called uh team kitchens and you know they've got a great deal right now with the dodgers um you know they're going to be selling dodger dogs across uh la you know and have tied in with that it's going to be great it's just like it's not going to be the same as the stadium cost, but just like being able to have that experience, you know, having that Apple box, that trust me sushi experience. Like you can't go to the stadium anymore. 
So like, hey, let me bring the food to you. And the Dodgers have a great marketing partnership with with Team Kitchens. And it's not going to be like Cloud Kitchens or Kitchens United where it's like the WeWork of like restaurants where you're like, you know, you have like the Langer's Deli here and then you have like a shawarma and then you have Chinese food. (laughs) No, we're, they're partnering up possibly with Applebee's and, you know, it's going to be like, we're going to have six, eight core menu items. And, you know, Applebee's is not going to go just start a restaurant in any neighborhood. They're not, you're never going to see an Applebee's in Beverly Hills, but maybe that's, that's not the key customer that they're mm-hmm. going for. Order an Applebee's, you know, because it's, it's like a, it's a kitchen that we, we bought uh, that's nearby that's doing 68 items really great you know it's a platform play and like you ha- have a b- beautiful presentation of it i mean i love it mike is a three-time entrepreneur i invested in his previous company before and before then he was one of the uh, co-founders of order market you know which is really done really great as well jonathan i i would imagine that the easiest way to invest in a founder up for the second mm-hmm. or the third time is them bringing you a nice big return on your earliest investment but what are some of the traits that you look for in your repeat investments? You know, of course, knowing the money is key there. What, what, a, what is it about these founders that you believe so much in them that you want to continue investing in them and even bringing your peers in and, and friends of yours in to invest in them? Yeah. Um, I always have this saying, it could be right or wrong, I could get in trouble. But I always, people always, I always tell people like, hey, everyone thinks their baby's beautiful. Does that mean there's no ugly babies or ugly kids? <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, I don't mean people are ugly in that sense. It's just like you kind of have to believe in that in in your own product, in your own vision. Like, how would you not? Like, who's gonna be honest? Like, yeah, it's not the greatest idea, but yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you like, oh, okay, at least he's honest. I mean, at least he or she's honest about it. But for me, it's just like. Um, you see there's some sort of repetition in great entrepreneurs. Like one company that I did that Unicorn didn't do, but I did for for, uh, my personal holding company, Jay Hart, is called Lighthouse. And this guy, uh, he started a quick service restaurant called Chicken Now that's in malls. Um, Got out of that. He was eight years at Airbnb. I mean, he was not let go of Airbnb in the latest round. He actually left. He is part of the experiences team and social team. And he's right now starting a company called Lighthouse where it's just about uh, paying people money to for a platform for property tech, rent tech, where it's just like, we'll pay you to rent with this platform. Because like for renters out there, realtors out there, you, they need to do so much marketing to get really good um, uh, lease agreements in place. So it's like, they're going to spend money to attract the best type of renters. So the idea with Lighthouse is like, hey, let, let us pay you to you, help you find your next home and then also help you find ways to save money so you eventually won't just be a renter. You're going to actually be a homeowner down the road. Mm. And it's super cool. They don't have the product out, but like, you know, they've recruited good people from Airbnb and it's not just because it's Airbnb, but it's just the guy has great, he showed me, he's like, I'm going to be in Texas. Why are you going to Texas? I'm going to go to Austin, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio to prove my concept out. And if it makes sense here, I can roll it out nationally because Texas is a place where housing is affordable and there's, it's skewing more younger in terms of demographics. And there's more and more less older. When you're in LA, you see so many older places mm. to rent. It's more up and coming, more built out, more nice, luxurious rental places. So it's like, it makes sense. So it's like, you show me the roadmap. If you can get 1% of the demand, and get like a bunch of the suppliers on there. Hey, I know we can raise your next seed round. You know, we'll show the metrics. Like he has about 20 customers that he signed up that have paid and are on the platform. 
and we'll see how he goes. You know, it's just that kind of stuff that excites me. It wasn't just because he has a great background, a team. It's just like looking at a resume. Oh, yeah, you went to all these places. Okay, now it's time for the interview. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. um, the pieces like, all have to fit together. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I can tell you, I got so many interviews just because, yeah, I went to MIT, you know, and I got Amazon and Chevron and Goldman, but it didn't mean I got the job, you know? It just meant, like, it got me in the room. And now it's time for you to wow me because, like, I'm going to spend my life with you. You know, I'm like, that's why I always tell people when you look for a job, it's not because like you're, you're not qualified or you weren't like, you couldn't do it. It's not that. It's just sometimes it's just fit and personalities. And it's just like, I'm going to spend more time with you during the week than I will with my own family. Yeah. And sometimes that's how, it is. that's how you, you mesh together for right or wrong. Jonathan, what is, if you don't mind me asking, like the average check size or around the average check size that most companies that would uh, would expect to get an investment from Unicorn be getting? Our, our lowest check size is 50,000 and we write up to 50, between 50 to 250 for the first pre-seed seed check. And for series A, we'd like to say over 250 and above. 250 and, and above. Yeah. Because sometimes it could be a million, it could be half a million, depending how much we love the idea when it's Series A. Because our strategy is simple. It's like 35 to 40% of the fund is going to go to pre-seed and seed, really early companies. But then the next 50 to 55%, that's going to go into your Series A. But the Series A is not just random, brand new Series A. It's the ones you put Already in Already invested in the seed. That you're going to double down in. Yeah. And that's how you're going to make more money because you found like those ones truly found true product market fit and are ready to scale faster. And then 10% of the, uh, of the portfolio, we leave for opportunistic things. Like we can't call ourselves unicorn and not have a unicorn, you know, unfortunately we, we, we got rid of one unicorn recently, unfortunately for a down round, but you know, we were in line, you know, when it was worth 2.4 billion. Now it's worth about 550. That's okay. I think we're still positive. We just did our pro rata in. Is um, that the Chow Now or or uh, Lime Scooters? Lime Scooters, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. We were in that. We also in Coinbase. You know, when it was at an eight billion dollar valuation, I still feel strongly about Coinbase and where it's heading. And uh, we have another company called Solugen. It's a chemicals company out of Houston, Texas. Uh, Founders Fund actually led the Series B. They put in like twenty million for a pre money valuation of about hundred million, and we did like a Series B extension round where we put in at like about two thirty pre money. We put a little money in and hopefully with Solugen does well, maybe founders want to lead, you know, the next hundred million in series C at 500 million, you know, down the road. God wow. willing. God willing. God. Yeah. But these are deals we get because of our networks, you know, for Lime, for example, we got through the Bush family, um, through Amanda Bush, who's married to George P. Bush. You know, they got us into Lime and we got a great opportunity to get in. And it's not just, we just invest for Unicorn. We have a great network of partners that we like to do syndicate deals with as well. And we're not necessarily even making money off of it because we just want to help people make money and have friends come together. Uh, John, that's awesome, man. One of my favorite questions that uh, I I love asking our guests, at least during the COVID times is what is the very first restaurant that you're going to go back to when you're going full steam ahead? Oh gosh, so many great options, right? Um, Oh, I'm trying to think of a really good one. Oh man. Well, I've been to this one for years. Like, you know, it's as old as me and it's uh, it's Chinua on main street. Chinois. It's Wokang park. Oh, yeah, I haven't been there. That's right down the street from my apartment. Oh, you gotta go. You, you gotta go. Chinois. I mean, I know. Okay. Yeah, I've been going since God, maybe I want to say the third grade, you know, and it's just like, it's great. 
you know, Chinese fusion food that Wolfgang's done, you know, I had like birthday parties there. So that's like up there, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily like, you know, I could say pizzeria Moza or like Providence or all the high end, but just something like that where they, they know your name. You've been there for years. (laughs) Uh, All right. I love it. Jonathan, uh, this was an amazing, amazing episode. I can't wait to send, you know, people that haven't heard of you uh, over to Unicorn. Where's the best place for people to, you know, catch up with you, email you, connect with you on the socials? Uh, where, where should I send people that are uh, that are listening? Yeah. So please go to our website, unicornvp.com. We got really lucky. We got a .com, not .co, not VC, not, you know, ventures, you know, Hey, that, that sold us. i getting the name. Um, if you want to email me, it's John J O N at unicornvp.com and connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm, I love uh, meeting people on LinkedIn. That's great. Especially now with COVID, you can't meet in person. Let's, let's meet each other, see who we know and get the ball rolling. Awesome, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Hey guys, I'm Sean Goldben, CEO of Coefficient Labs. This is Demo Day. Demo Day.